it is an issue that needs to be communicated to quite uh, sometimes quite resistant audiences. So finding that purpose has been absolutely key. Hello, my name is John Higginson, and I'm on a mission to revolutionise communications by focusing on the power of purpose. Each week, I'll interview a leading light in the communications world, getting inside into what it means to be in communications, why it's so important, and most importantly, why you should focus on your purpose to exponentially expand audience engagement. This week, I'm joined by Bell Jacobs, former style editor of Metro for 15 years, where we work together for many years while I myself was covering politics for the paper. In 2013, Bell reassessed her career after the fall of Rana Plaza. Rana Plaza was badly built garment factory in Bangladesh, which collapsed, killing 1,134 workers and injuring another 2,500. They were making fast fashion items for us in the West. If you've ever wondered how fast fashion outlets can make clothing as cheaply as they do, it's by finding the poorest people in the world putting them into vast, cheaply built factories with poor safety standards and working them long hours. The Rana Plaza collapse showed us what the real cost of a £5 dress is. Today, Bell is a speaker, writer and activist with a focus on animal rights, the climate emergency and the toxicity of the fashion industry. Bell is also a part of Extinction Rebellion and has since opened a climate emergency centre in North London to bring other change makers together to accelerate change. Belle, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, John. I thought we'd begin by talking a little about you and your personal story. What's your background and how did you get to where you are today? Um, people ask me about this because they want to know why someone has gone from being a fashion editor, which is arguably, I don't know if you remember, John, but it genuinely was a fun job. If you ever looked across on my desk from the news desk, you would have just seen a pile of free gifts. Um, and yeah. then I got to meet amazing people, you know, they flew me around the world. I think one of the highlights of my professional career was jet skiing around the harbour in Cannes off the boat of a major fashion brand. Okay, it's kind of like fashion is the stuff that dreams is made of. And when you're within the industry in that capacity, you know, you literally get to a point where I remember stopping the jet ski and thinking, <laughs> it's not going to get better than this. It, so it was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful job. It probably sort of ticked a lot of boxes about 90s cliche, though. I have to say there's a lot of consumption, a lot of, you know, uh, late nights and parties and people being dressed up. And I think actually those are some of the things that made me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> Weirdly, there was so much stuff crossing my desk it, and it grew exponentially from when I joined Metro in 1999 to when I left in the mid to no, when I left in when I left in 2014. And Quantity was horrendous. The value systems of people working in the industry was just about, you know, how much they could sell. My own journalism at the time was very much what fashion journalists write about, trends and skirt lengths and, you know, back, you know, black is back and why is it back and why you should buy more black. And and, and it felt very mm, fun but empty. And I think Rana Plaza as you've mentioned, was definitely the moment when not just me, but lots of people thought, what is happening in this industry that what is projected of it is so different from how the clothes are actually made. And I think that that discrepancy was really painful. 1,134 people just trying to make their living, most of them young women who had perhaps left their families behind with their mothers. And, and 
it was the beginning of a reassessment in the industry and 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 sort of after a year after that I left I think I t- it almost took a sort of year to process what my role was in it because some of the labels I was writing about was very similar to pictures of the labels sort of emerging from the rubbles it's a very visceral connection and I also wondered what I could do to make it better and I think what I thought I could do to make it better was try and really focus on sust- sustainable alternatives that were coming up at the, uh, that time of course now and you know I was of the mindset it's just if you could replace all the really damaging fashion with all really good fashion everything will be fine and we can keep going on just as we are and and since then obviously I've, I've I've, I've realised that that is not true, that the rate of growth is excessive and unsustainable, by which I mean it is way outside planetary boundaries, that fashion itself, we don't need any more of it, um, so that everything that's being produced is using resources and manpower and animal lives and natural, you know, and, and literally land itself to produce things that no one needs more of seems to me ridiculous. And then when you look at the IPCC report and you look at the climate emergency, um, I think a couple of days ago, the BBC covered a story saying that the UK is going to pass 1.5 degrees in a few years' time, two or three years' time. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean balmier days in summer, John. That means, you know, animals and birds and insects not being able to adjust, pollinators disrupted, the way we grow food, you know, more floods in areas that are low lying. It's it's not it's not balmier summer days. So so in a climate emergency, and the question I often ask is what is fashion in a climate emergency? And it is not what it is today. It can't be what it is today. It has to dramatically remodel. And um by dramatically remodel, I mean cut in size profoundly. And it needs to address some really systemic issues such as, you know, if you really want to get into it, the racism in a system which compels poor people on one side of the world to make clothes for rich people on the other side of the globe who then throw them away. So it is 99% of all textiles produced go into landfill. What a crazy, crazy, crazy system. And so even though I love the creative aspects of fashion and, and the good news for fashion lovers is you don't need to let go of that. What you do need to let go of is this constant chase of the new, the constant chase of being on trend, this constant need to appear in some way relevant according to incredibly social, cultural, narrow social, uh, cultural codes. I mean, really, really, we have in the, you've already got me going, John, <laughs> but, but we in the North have imposed our vision of what clothing should be on all other areas of the world, almost, in terms of how it's made, how it's consumed, how it's thrown away, you know, and, and this is time for reassessment of, of so many things. The, the degrowth argument in fashion is, is fascinating and, and powerful and, and very much likely to go ahead very strongly. I went to a dinner last night where someone said, oh, sustainability is so hot. It's not hot. This is the reality. This is this is the truth of the moment. Well, not the moment. It's the truth of our future, your future, the future mm-hmm. of children and our children's children. Mm-hmm. Generations to come, the impact of, of what we're doing now. You talked about that kind of how previously you would follow those trends and stuff. Do you think somehow those trends are really part of making people feel insecure, making people if if black is now in all those colours that we said to you, I said to you 12 months ago that colours are in. And now all that stuff in your wardrobe is all out of fashion. If you go outside and you're wearing that, you're no longer going to be cool. You're no longer going to be sexy because the new colour's black. And in in another six months' time or 12 months' time, I'm going to tell you that black is out and that now colours are back in. And so was that that one of the things that, that was hard for you to kind of come to terms with, the fact that you were perhaps a part of that? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, you, you've hit the nail on the head. The trends are the mechanism of driving consumption. And they're not, you know, whereas in the past, perhaps the idea of the trend, the look rose organically from communities and interests. And so Today, or definitely for the last 30 or 40 years, trends have been artificially constructed by brands in order to get people really excited about the next new product. And it's, you know, it's for that reason that, you know, and we'll come on to Extinction Rebellion, but I joined Extinction Rebellion fashion teams and we held this funeral march in front of the British Fashion Council calling for the end of Fashion Week. Because the end of fashion, because Fashion Week is essentially only a parade of new trends. It's only a parade of the new. It's only there to legitimise the concept that whatever you have in your wardrobe now is not relevant. And what you need to get is what is on the catwalk now. So uh, they haven't stopped Fashion Week, but we could only ask. And how has finding this new purpose in your life? Because this this podcast is all about really we want to speak to people in communications about why finding your deep why will make your communications more effective. Tell us a bit about how you find communications effective now that you're able to talk about something that you're actually passionate about rather than something that you may have done for the money and done for the glamorous lifestyle but actually not felt that was truly what you believed in yeah i mean it just it just makes life a bit easier to be honest john to to, to care about something so deeply has led me you know when i research when i read around it when i when I gather information, it's it's with a, a real hunger, and we're you know not weirdly, but it is a it is an issue that needs to be communicated to quite uh, sometimes quite resistant audiences. So finding that purpose has been absolutely key, and 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 really and finding ways to communicate that purpose to different audiences has been is is an ongoing adventure. There is, you know, one thing I will say, whatever we talk about here, it's not just about the communication. There has to be an integrity with the intention. That's actually something that that I always tell people anyway. You can't just say, oh, we're going to be purposeful because we want to get up. We want to uh, get more coverage. And so we're going to talk about something because it becomes so obvious and it becomes more obvious if you're trying to talk about something that is actually that that is pretending to be deeply held it's just far more obvious so obviously you have to be passionate about this thing in order to to uh, talk about it I think I think basically what you're describing there if if you're not feeling passionately about it but you're communicating passion you're basically greenwashing yes and I would also say it's a bit dangerous for your brand because I think consumers and I don't want to call them consumers so I'll call them citizens a much more active engagement. I think they are starting to ask quite difficult questions. I saw an article in Vogue saying how to spot greenwashing. It was basically instructing shoppers to go into the facts and figures to ask really difficult questions of brands. So I think, yeah, you, yeah, greenwashing. Everyone's talking and thinking about greenwashing. You know, it's an article that comes up in a lot of magazines and fashion media. You know, even when they're covering trends, they're talking about you need to look out for greenwashing, which is a form of greenwashing. But, you know, hey, hey, it's a step in the right direction. Do you think the media is guilty of skewing truths and manipulating its audiences for its own agenda? Yeah, I mean, that was very prevalent in fashion. And and one of the things you'll find when you flick open a fashion magazine is, is every article is fairly uncritical, very uncritical of 
the companies that they write about, because often those companies are the ones advertising and paying paying the revenue. And I think so the fashion sort of the fashion media organizations have an interest in keeping things as they're going and not shaking things up too much. Which does mean that sometimes you you get amazing people who care passionately and, and know things going on writing really quite insipid articles, I think. And I think fashion communication is increasingly coming under the spotlight, uh, which is good. But yeah, fa- media is, yeah, it's it's not telling us what's really going on. And to expect a citizenship to respond to the emergency as it needs to be responded to, John, it's not being covered in any kind of media, I think really adequately and even the guardian which i really hold up as a, a gold standard you know they sometimes the environment is just, there was one there was one news report you know uk is close to cr- crossing several key tipping points and it was halfway down the web page but we're talking about loss of wildlife you know we've depleted our wildlife rivers dying and, and so this is really serious news so in any other world you'd think surely that would be right up at the top we have Ukraine. It's difficult to argue with what's going on in, in Ukraine. But yeah, I think that the media has a huge responsibility and is getting more attention for that. And I think the UNEP actually wrote about fashion communication saying, you know, fashion communicators have a responsibility to be more clear about fashion's impact. Are there any mediums that, that you really rate as a way of communicating now? Do you know what? In their writers... There's a guy called Naviz Ahmed, who's an academic, and uh, and he's an incredible writer. And I think he sometimes publishes on Medium. In terms of fashion, there's a fantastic sustainability writer, a sustainability editor for Vogue Business called Rachel Chernansky, who has a background in sciences and was employed not as, you know, to, to, to turn that sort of scientific eye onto the fashion industry. So I really, really rate Rachel, even though she's also working within the constraints of Vogue business. I can't, I'm racking my brain, John. There are places I go to and I yeah. go, yeah, they're telling it like it is. Any any forms of social media, say, if we're not going to individual publications, what do you think is the most effective social media tool at the moment? I mean, I'm on Twitter a lot. Mm. And I know that that's not um, as popular with the fashion crew who like Instagram, but I get a lot of information, mainly climate information off Twitter by following key people like the climate scientist Peter Kalmos. With all social media, you need a degree of conscious choice, I think, because you can get some bonkers people out there saying whatever they like. Now, you've been involved, as I said, with Extinction Rebellion. Tell us about your role with them. Yeah, so I joined Extinction Rebellion basically the moment they launched, I joined as a steward for the first, the big first action, which occupied the five bridges of London. And I remember sort of just the sense of relief that there was this group of people that finally got it. The, the news that had been emerging throughout 2018 had been really appalling about the climate, just sort of unbelievable headlines, like apocalyptic IPCC reports. So when XR finally emerged. It seemed such a natural, you know, I was just so relieved, John, you know, to be there on that bridge and feel that sense of community, to know that you weren't going to have to go up to any one of those people and go, did you know there's a climate emergency? These people knew. What was quite interesting is I remember a fantastic conversation with a geologist who knew there was a climate emergency from the perspective of her subject area. But when I said to her, fashion is really bad too, had no idea. So it, she was like, I didn't realize, I thought fashion was just fun and innocent. 
my relationship with XR meant that I also joined XR Fashion. So we held that uh, that funeral march and a couple of other really key campaigns. Our first campaign was actually boycott fashion. So we were asking people to stop buying all new clothing. And, you know, that's actually even more relevant today than it was then. People need to stop buying new clothing. Being part of XR, you know, what a, I haven't been arrested, John. You don't need to be arrested. It's a personal choice. There is a slight sense that those who are arrested are, you know, well, I mean, they are. They're fantastic. They've put their personal liberty um, out there on the line. I, I don't feel comfortable with it. But also being part of XR means you have this community of people with whom you're sharing ideas constantly. So so I tend to find that you have a really great engaged conversation within, within the XR community. You step out of that community and you find yourself going, oh, you didn't have how could you you didn't know that you didn't know about decolonization racism in the fashion industry you didn't know about okay right okay so let's go back a step and let's let's look at that and I now have moved to the climate center which is a lot less obviously activist but a lot of this is where I think my involvement with XR it becomes a mindset and the mindset is that we're in climate and ecological emergency and that's what informs everything I do so even though if you come down to the Islington Climate Center or up you know, it actually feels like quite a happy environment. Everyone who works there knows that we need to act fast. Great. So, um, and and how can people come to the centre? That they go to Climate Emergency Centre. Um, yeah. No. Well, we've got our own website, Islington Climate Centre. Um, so, so the Islington Climate Centre is really about trying to communicate with ordinary people where they are. It's a very different form of commu- communication, John. You know, I mean, we're trying to pull in people off the the path outside and or or they come in and we we you know if you're talking about communication we're trying to get them to try to meet them where they are they're curious they're like what are you guys doing here this is what we're doing have you thought about this what's your engagement with it already um and then we have at the moment saturday events which are really really cheerful because we're trying to show that actually this is a key part of visioning and within activist circles it's it's just part of my journey as well we can't just tell people everything's awful and they've behaved really badly. We have to say to people, the alternative is better. It's happier. It's more in tune with nature. It's less destructive to nature. And your role in it could be this or this or this or this. And I think that's an absolute key element of activism now. And it's the visioning of the better future. Bill Jacobs, environmental activist and former fashion editor. Thank you very much indeed for joining me this morning. I am John Higginson, the founder of Higginson Strategy, a communications agency for purpose-led organisations. Thank you very much for listening.